Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, Dr. Christy Brown Montesano, Chair of Music History and Literature at the Colburn Conservatory of Music, explores the careers and influences of Rossini and Wagner up to 1850 in the context of European opera cultures of that time. This recording was created as part of LA Opera Connect's scholar series on Rossini's La Cenerentola and Wagner's Tannhäuser. I welcome you all today, opera lovers and or educators. Today's topic is really diving into what I, you know, I've had a tale of two opera composers, Rossini and Wagner. The umbrella term opera covers so many different types of works across centuries and national traditions. Opera, the word in Italian literally means the work. So today people think of opera as a dramatic musical piece that is presented mostly via singing, if not wholly via singing. And there are a lot of exceptions in the repertoire um, to this general definition, especially in comic opera, which sometimes contains spoken dialogue. And then if you look at the season offerings around houses over the, throughout the globe, operettas are coming in more. So those of Gilbert and Sullivan and Broadway musicals, which in fact are turning up more and more frequently. So you can, in the past few years, as I've looked, I've seen West Side Story, Sweeney Todd, Showboat, Candide, Carousel, A Little Night Music, and many others. So it's not strange for us to think about it today, uh, that a serious dramatic opera like Tannhäuser and a comic work like Rossini's Cenerentola would be staged by the same company for the same audience, same subscribing audience. But at the times of their premieres, these operas were worlds apart. During the 19th century, even the venue could signify something about the piece. There were theaters dedicated just to the most grand and serious opera, others theaters that would do comic, uh, some that would do opera plus spoken theater, some that mixed ballet, just as we see with different houses today. But you wouldn't necessarily, the, the closest thing I can give is you might back in the day expect to see Rossini's opera more at something like the Pantages. And then you would have Wagner being performed at Dorothy Chandler. It wasn't just a matter of, there wasn't necessarily a hierarchy, but it was just considered two very different types of works. So I wanted to explore the context for these two works. They're very unique context and also offer a closer look at the creators, Rossini and Wagner the opera traditions and history that influenced them, the theatrical culture that each one of them was working in and their life experiences, all of which relate to the content and style of Cenerentola and Tannhäuser. Let's start with the basics. Giacchino Rossini's La Cenerentola, the subtitle is Ossia la bontà in trionfo. So this is Cinderella or Goodness Triumphant. It's a two-act work and he labeled it as a drama giocoso, so a humorous or lively, lively drama, uh, what we might call a dramedy or a comedrama today, with a libretto by Jacopo Ferretti, 
on a fairy tale widely known at the time throughout Europe in various forms. Then there's Richard Wagner's Tannhäuser. It's a three-act Grossa Romantische Oper. That's what he called it. So a grand romantic opera with a libretto by Wagner himself that focuses specifically on events and figures of German history and legend. So you have one that is kind of an international European story and one that focuses more on Germany. And you will see also that these two operas are 30 years apart, basically. So there's a, a good span between the two premieres. Okay. So at this moment, especially for all the people that said, I know a little bit about opera, but I'm still learning a lot of things. I'd like to make a full and honest disclosure. I didn't grow up with opera. My mom and grandmother loved the ballet and musicals, and so did I. Uh, so my first real experience of opera came during undergraduate studies in music at UC Davis. And that was in recorded form. And now I'm going to completely age myself. Recorded form like LPs first, <laughs> and then, then CDs. And finally, you know, we had some VHS recordings for my classes. During my time at Davis as an undergraduate, had the extraordinary opportunity of singing in the chorus in a university production of Bellini's I Capuletti e di Montecchi, The Capulets and the Montagues. But my first encounter with opera music was very young and it came in the form of cartoons, specifically Looney Tunes. And when I thought about that for a moment, I realized ironically that the two famous examples of Bugs Bunny cartoons that mixed with opera quite explicitly uh, highlighted the music of Rossini and Wagner. And the first of, that I wanna share with you is The Rabbit of Seville. This is from 1950, uh, opens with a placard telling us this is a summer opera performance of Rossini's The Barber of Seville, uh, starring a variety of singers, all with Italian names, of course. And not far from the concert scene, Bugs Bunny is fleeing from his arch nemesis, the hunter, Elmer Fudd. And as he tries to escape, he sees the back door the backstage door and goes in there. And at that point, the opera is hijacked by this battle of wits between Bugs and Elmer. Now, the climactic ending is set to excerpts from the very familiar overture of the Barber of Seville. I still laugh at this. It gives you a little bit of a taste of why Rossini is known primarily for his comic works. The music works brilliantly for this. And there's also an insider knowledge for these cartoons. You would know if you knew a little bit about opera that the next installment from the Barber of Seville story, which was penned by Beaumarchais as a play, is The Marriage of Figaro. So they have act two, Figaro, right? So it's letting you know. So that's, there's kind of the obvious funny hijinks and then there's this insider opera joke. 
Now, the next one I want to show is from 1957, What's Opera, Doc? And again, begins with kind of a familiar concert sound, the, an orchestra tuning that precedes the performance. And once again, we find bugs fighting against Elmer Fudd in the usual life or death conflict. And this cartoon is filled with different snippets of Wagner's operatic music. We have bits of the overture from Rienzi and the Flying Dutchman, the Valkyries cry from Die Valkyrie from The Ring, a horn call from Siegfried, and quite a bit of music from Tannhäuser, including this hilarious scene. I started with opera was through cartoons and I couldn't get most of the funny things of this, the references to actual Wagner operas, but it still worked. It shows also American culture's kind of uh, love and slightly, you know, I would say satirical relationship to opera, which is one of the most ostentatious over-the-top, deliciously emotional and spectacular genres of, of theater out there. So let's return again to our two operas there. So aside from these goofy illusions, the operas of Rossini and Wagner continue today to be among the most globally popular. Consider this recent data from Opera Base, which tracks opera activity throughout the world. Rossini, Wagner, both there in our top 10. I, when I looked at works, it was very interesting because none of Wagner's works actually were in the top 10. Um, I do think the scale and expense of those works is often prohibitive, but uh, the Barber of Seville, practically every country, except for France, uh, had Barber of Seville in the top 10. So, I wanted, before we get to the works, to look at these composers because they are what we call canonical. They're still very much revered in the repertoire. Their works are still very much part of the opera world today. And so I built a little bit of a timeline. Rossini could easily have been Wagner's father. There's also a difference, of course, in birthplace and national identity, which we will explore more. On the other hand, both composers were born into artistic families that in some way were centered on the theater. So Rossini's dad was a horn player, but his mom was in fact a theatrical opera singer. And on the other side, Wagner born in Leipzig, Germany, the center of Thuringia, very much associated with the mature profession of Bach. He spent most of his professional life in that city. And Wagner grew up with a stepfather um, who was an actor and painter specifically with the theater. Now let's look at what happens with Rossini then, because we're waiting for Wagner. By the time uh, he was 12 years old, 
Rossini was already having steady work as the Maestro di Cembolo. And this meant as Maestro di Cembolo meant he was at the harpsichord. He was at the center of the orchestra. Often people would conduct from the harpsichord. So he probably did lead the orchestra at some times, or they would be taking the cues from the first violinist. But as the harpsichordist, as this master of the cembalo, you are in fact central to the musical part of the pr presentation. Now in 1810, he writes his first opera, he gets his first commission from the Teatro San Moise uh, in Venice. It is a one act farsa, a farce called La Cambiale di Matrimonio, the marriage contract. So it's just for a lot of fun. And I have here a little snippet from the overture of the Cambiale di Matrimonio, this first commissioned work by Rossini. So already in this early work, you hear some of the things that made Rossini's style so popular. The tuneful melodies, again, very snappy, vibrant rhythms that are happening. Woodwind players love Rossini for his, uh, particularly his overtures. They get all kinds of fun things to play. You have a spotlight of the horn as well. So that's a little taste of early Rossini. Now, already the year that Wagner is born, Rossini achieves international acclaim with two operas for Venice, Tancredi, which was a serious opera, and L'Italiana in Algeri, which is one of his most hijinks, crazy comedies. So that's where they're lining up. I wanted you to be able to see some of the ways their lives come together. So we just meet Wagner and Rossini is already internationally renowned. As we go forward, Rossini nabs an absolutely plum position. He becomes music director and composer from 1814 to 1822 at San Carlo in Naples. This was a prime place uh, for to be hired as music director. So he, he got a very prestigious job. He's really at a wonderful high point. By 1816, three operas alone premiere. Il Barbiere, The Barber of Seville, La Gazzetta, and his serious opera, Otello. M many of you may not have known that he wrote an Otello setting before the famous one of Verdi at the end of Verdi's life. And this is the thing. He has completed by now in 1816, by the end of it, 19 operas. He is 24 years old. Even more incredible, all of these operas he has, that he has written have been staged almost immediately at venues that 
uh, included some of the most famous opera places at then and still today. La Fenice in Venice, the Teatro Argentino in Rome, La Scala in Milan, and Teatro San Carlo in Naples. But this success also meant an incredibly punishing work schedule. The kind that I hear something similar from composers working in television, where the turnaround for music is lightning fast. So the year that Cenerentola premiered, 1817, Rossini is 25 years old. It premieres in Rome. And it offers an example that is far from unusual in Rossini's life as an opera composer. He received the commission in early December, 1816, from the Teatro Valle in Rome, but their first choice for a libretto was rejected by the papal censors. This was typical. Opera librettos throughout Europe had to go through censors who decided whether it was either ethically, morally okay, or politically okay with whoever the rulers were. So it didn't pass through the papal censor, and that left Rossini and his librettist, Jacopo Ferretti, deciding on a version of Cinderella, a tale that was one, fine with the censors, two, was in vogue in opera librettos already. There are some now unknown part of uh, operas that have been written on it. And three was light enough for the carnival season in Rome before the whole city shuts down for Lent. So the papal states had a love-hate relationship with opera, but they still wanted to be part of their happy times. So I want to remind you, he got this commission in December, so early part of December in 1816. Cenerentola premieres on the 25th of January, 1817. So that is less than two months time. It has to be rehearsed. Bottom line, according to Ferretti, Rossini wrote the music for Cenerentola in three weeks. So that is an incredible thing. And soon Rossini's operas, both comic and serious, soon spread beyond Italy. So that in 1822, there was actually a Rossini festival with the Naples troupe that he directed in Vienna. So he is already at this point, at 30 years of age, there are Rossini festivals happening. He is the most popular composer in Europe. At that time, he meets Beethoven. Beethoven is, you know, he's the, Rossini just feels like he's with his idol. Beethoven is polite up to the point that uh, Rossini says, yes, I also want to write some more serious opera. Beethoven having written one serious opera, his rescue opera, uh, Fidelio, and Beethoven in his usually usual curt self says, uh, just write more barber. So it was a way of saying, don't try the heavy stuff, just stick with your light comedies. In some ways we can understand that because once again, these comedies were incredibly popular. It was a winning formula for Rossini. Now, all this time, Wagner is just a little boy who starts piano lessons in 1820. So he is still very young at this time. As we go forward, Rossini goes to Paris. Paris is the operatic, it is the capital of opera for Europe during this time. And the Opéra, the beautiful theater, Garnier, that is where 
opera is happening. Everybody wants to make it in Paris. Verdi will go to Paris. Donizetti and Bellini will both be in Paris. This is where you want to go. And Wagner will go there as well. He becomes the director of the Italian theater in Paris. He's asked to do that. He also begins bringing some of his operas there, including serious ones. And he pays it forward. He helps a young Giacomo Meyerbeer have his Il Crociato in Egitto, one of his early operas played at the Teatro Italiano, at the Italian theater. So Rossini is high. He is like, he's made it. He's completely made it. He begins then to specifically compose a series of French language operas for Paris, including his last opera, and we'll think about that, Guillaume Tell. It is his last opera. And there are some political and artistic reasons for that. During this time in 1830, there are revolutions throughout Belgium, France, Poland, the Italian states, and Switzerland. Now, the problem with that is just before Guillaume Tell went up on the stage, Rossini had negotiated an amazing deal with the French government under Charles X. He got them to, he was getting them to agree to an annual salary just to stay in Paris, just to run some things. And he said he would do four operas, but that was actually not even in the contract. So he wanted this annuity guaranteed. And he said, I won't put Guillaume Tell onto your stage until you sign the contract. So they agreed, Tell went forward, was a big splash at the opera. And Rossini and his wife go back to Italy for a vacation. And in that time, these revolutions happen. And the problem is that Charles X is dethroned and all contracts that were signed by that old regime are suspended. So he spends several years trying to get that contract honored. And at that time, he's starting to feel the health effects of the schedule he has kept up for years. So... He retires at the height of his fame in 1830. He's 38 years old. So that's something that many people don't realize. When they see the older, paunchier Rossini in pictures, he's already done with his theatrical work. He does write a few more large-scale works, but he also concentrates on songs. And at the same time, Wagner is in school. He's just attending school. All this stuff is happening so for him, Rossini is the older generation. It's someone that he will actually, it's almost like grandfatherly in terms of art because Rossini will help Meyerbeer and as we'll learn, Meyerbeer will help Wagner. So Wagner only as the very year, basically that Rossini has disappeared from the opera stage as a composer, he begins his music studies at Leipzig University. A few years later, he completes his first opera, Die Feen, uh, the fairies. And uh, he also will later get his, soon after that, get his first professional post as chorus master at a theater in Würzburg. And I want to show you a little bit of the overture. You can listen now to this early overture of Wagner for Die Feen.
So some of Wagner is there, these big repetitive melodic gestures that grow into these large melodic gestures. It's a very lush, even though this is a fairy opera, a magic opera, very lush string, what we think of as a more kind of romantic sound there. Um, so that's really uh, Wagner, but I will point out that did not get immediately staged, Dithea, and it, it wasn't staged until 1888, more than 50 years later. So unlike Rossini, who had this kind of instant fame and access to the, to the stage, uh, Wagner will have to wait. As we get to the late 1830s, Wagner gets his first music directorship uh, at the theater in what was now Latvia, Riga, in the capital of Riga. I would like to point out that he also begins the red pocketbook. He begins putting notes to a future autobiography. Now think about this. He has not even had a work staged yet, and he's already putting together his autobiography. That is some inter that's like that's strong self-confidence happening there. This is a watershed moment for, for opera in general, is that Meyerbeer's Les Huguenots from 1836 enthralls the Paris opera audiences and grand opera, French grand opera becomes the vogue. And we will talk about a little bit about French, French grand opera at the end. Our final little, so that's kind of where we see them come together through Paris. This last little bit gets sad for Rossini, much happier for Wagner, all, although always an adventure. Wagner has to leave his position at, at Riga in the middle of the night with fake papers. His and his wife, Mina's passports have been confiscated because they owe so much money to everybody in Riga. He's already begun writing Rienzi. He basically sneaks out with his family and there's a dog in there too. They have this horrible crossing, you know, Baltic Sea through, you know, around Scandinavia and down to the UK before they go over the, to France which he said in a later writing was uh, his inspiration for the stormy sea in, uh, in The Flying Dutchman. Uh, but he is set on going to Paris and making it. Rossini, resting in Milan, establishes a salon. His villa is a place for intellectual conversation and a lot of music making, but he is really not composing. So you see Wagner going up, Rossini starting to, to kind of go down in his creative output. Wagner fails, however, phenomenally fails in Paris. He just cannot get it going, despite help from uh, Meyerbeer. The, the politics of the opera, the social gatekeeping just made it very difficult. And his uh, position as an outsider, as a German, and his personality made it very difficult. He finishes working on Rienzi, and he begins work on Flying Dutchman. Uh, but none of these are getting put on. Now, it's basically through the help of Meyerbeer that Rienzi gets its chance on the stage. Meyerbeer finds a way to, with his contacts at the Dresden Hoftheater and says, put this on, put the, give this kid a, a shot here. So he begins to make his way, Wagner makes his way back to Germany where in fact it will be put on. Rossini, one of his last great works, the Stabat Mater finished in 1841. Everybody loves it, is acclaimed in Paris and Bologna but he is really suffering physically. His health is terrible. As Wagner now firmly landed in his homeland, there are premieres at Dresden of Rienzi and Dutchman. 
They like those so much that they hire him as a music director and Tannhäuser will receive its premiere there in 1845. So he's 32 years old. So he's only six years younger than Rossini was when he retired. So he is a more kind of late start, but now ready to go because he's consistently worked on operas even when they weren't being staged. Again, for Rossini, he travels to Paris for medical treatments. He's quite unwell. Another set of revolutions. And I end with this because it will affect Wagner and Rossini profoundly. This one was called the Springtime of Nations and the revolutions throughout Europe will include the German and Italian states. So these, these regions of, that are German language and Italian regions that are Italian language are not yet countries. So Wagner actually takes an active role in the uprisings in Dresden as a writer and spokesperson. He wrote a lot. He had to flee from Prussian troops in 1849. He is exiled to Switzerland and he will not be able to return to Germany for 15 years until 1864. And for his part, Rossini also is exiled in a way. He had a more conservative idea about revolution. His father had been arrested for his revolutionary activities. So he was very circumspect about politics. He had all these deals with monarchs and people in power. And so Bologna, which has always leaned to the left a lot, basically turned on him. He moved to Florence for a time and he finally settled in Paris. He died there at his villa in the Parisian area uh, and was buried there. So these two guys have very much, they have contrasting careers in many ways. And yet there are some connections both of them born to artistic families connected to the theater, both drawn to Paris, arguably the most esteemed opera center in Europe. They both held music directorships at important houses, Naples and Dresden. And both composers were affected professionally and personally by the political revolutions of their times, going into different kinds of exiles after the 1848 revolutions. So you find this, that Rossini walks away from the theater at his height, and Wagner instead relishes revolution. And during his exile in Switzerland, spends much of that time working on libretto for the ring and other things. He never stops working and writes numerous essays on the state of Germany and German music. Art as revolution, uh, artwork of the future, opera and drama. So he really sets his sights on becoming a German opera composer. So they came from wildly different experiences of what it meant to be an opera composer. In a way, Wagner was a foreigner to this, trying to find his way. For Rossini, he could feel almost a native claim and there was a lot of support in his country. Where do they come together? These are two heroes that Rossini and Wagner shared. Rossini was more popular than Beethoven during the 1820s. Uh, in fact, Beethoven, you know, we think, oh, but the ninth, but his late works were not really popular in the sense. Rossini was incredibly popular, but he held the, understand, the, the older composer in absolute high esteem. He made a point of visiting, really paying homage to him. Beethoven in his symphonies and his overtures had demonstrated the astounding experience potential in instrumental music. The Italians weren't great at that. 
uh, it was pushing then opera composers, even Italian bel canto, that's beautiful singing, Italian bel canto opera composers, with a tradition of prioritizing the beauty of the voice and letting you know the orchestra just be kind of like black velvet to the diamond. But now even Italian bel canto composers had to think more about the orchestra. And the success of Rossini's overtures along with Wagner's shows something about the influence of Beethoven. Wagner saw Beethoven as the very foundation for what he termed the artwork of the future. He believed that Beethoven had taken the symphony as a genre as far as it could go for just purely instrumental music. And that the next natural step was to combine the symphonic power of instrumental music with das Wort, with the word, meaning text, drama. And Wagner made it a priority. He wanted to signal the importance of the ninth to opera, to his vision of opera, so that when he was a music director at Dresden, he conducted one of the rare mid-19th century performances of the Ninth Symphony, which most conductors and orchestras of the time avoided as much too difficult. The other crucial connection between Rossini and Wagner, as I pointed out, is Paris and this genre we call French Grand Opera which Rossini's Guillaume Tell had helped to launch uh, and which found a new champion in Giacomo Meyerbeer. In fact, Wagner wrote a letter to, to Meyerbeer saying, you're really my model. You're the person I wanna, I mean, I see in your works what I want to do. And he modeled Rienzi specifically on Meyerbeer's works. Now, frankly, not many of the French grand operas that were so popular on the Parisian stage in the 1830s and 40s are still put on frequently today. Um, they're not, they're canonically recognized as important, but they're not staged as often. But the elements that made French grand opera so popular influenced every opera composer of the time. Thank you very much. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. <laughs>